0: You're listening to the magnum version of the Savage Love Cast. www.savagelovecast.com. If
1: you're stuck in a relationship, quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't pass on the Savage Lovecast.
2: OnlyFans. Only fans. I was going to talk about the OnlyFans situation at the top of this week's show, but the OnlyFans situation seems to have resolved itself. OnlyFans is a platform where people can subscribe to content creators who then share exclusive photos and videos on the site. It's a site worth billions, thanks to the sex workers and porn performers the platform marketed itself to and recruited when it first launched in 2016. And then a week ago, OnlyFans announced it was banning all sexually explicit content from its site because banks, credit card companies, processors were forcing them to. They reversed course in a week. OnlyFans turned around and said a week later, basically, we hear you. And announced that they weren't going to ban sexually explicit content after all and would no longer be pivoting to I don't know what. I don't know what they planned to pivot to the week before last base tune teenagers doing lip syncs and cooking tutorials and other shit people can get for free on YouTube and TikTok right now. How are you going to make money at that? But that was their plan a week and a half ago. What seems to have made the difference here, and what I see as a sign of real progress, the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, Daily Papers, NPR, mainstream publications, went to sex workers and porn stars to get quotes about how OnlyFans was doing to them what Facebook and Instagram and Craigslist had already done to them. And how this, being driven off the internet, was making their lives harder and sex work more dangerous. Not eradicating sex work, not ending it, just making it more dangerous. That's new, and it made a huge difference. Abigail Higgins has a terrific piece at the Lily. Sex workers rallied together when OnlyFans banned sexually explicit content. They believe their voices are finally being heard. That's the headline. Go read it. I'm not the only one who thinks that this new development reporters talking to sex workers about sex work is making a difference, is creating some sort of seismic shift, some change. You know, if you read stories written about gay people from five decades ago, they didn't talk to gay people. They didn't talk to us. They talked about us. When that changed, things started to change for gay people. Seems to me that until very, very recently, stories written about sex workers and porn performers in mainstream publications, they talked about sex workers and porn performers, not to them. That's changing. That's changed. It took a few decades to get from talking to gay people, about gay people, to the progress we've seen on gay rights. But we wouldn't have seen that progress if that hadn't happened. And that couldn't have happened if gay people weren't willing to talk, if gay people weren't out. I think we're on a similar trajectory here with sex workers and sex workers' rights. From finally quoting gay people and stories about gay people to marriage equality in 40 years, here's hoping we go from quoting sex workers and stories about sex work to decriminalization of sex work in less time. All right, there's something I want to share, something kind of random before I get to your calls. Basically, I have a beef with the internet. The internet, you let me down this week. I mean, I heard right away about all four of the right-wing anti-vax, anti-mask radio talk show hosts who died of COVID last week. Jimmy DeYoung in Tennessee, Dick Farrell in Florida, Phil Valentine also in Tennessee, Mark Bernier also in Florida. And I am not complaining about that. I like to stay informed. But I am wondering, how many right-wing radio talk show hosts have to die before they start taking the pandemic seriously? And it looks like their preferred answer, the preferred answer of right-wing radio talk show hosts everywhere, is all of us. All of us have to die. And as tempting as it is to say, okay, sure, all of you is a price I am willing to pay. We have to think of all the other people being harmed by these dumb motherfuckers. Not just listeners, not just their listeners, people stupid enough to listen to them. But all the people these men and their listeners may have passed the infection on to. I'm really not worried about our strategic national stockpile of asshole right wing radio talk show hosts running low. That's not my beef with the internet. And again, I like to stay informed. I was happy to hear about it. It's just that I heard about them, Jimmy Dick, Phil, and Mark, right away. But somehow the internet failed to bring the gazebo situation in Eureka, California to my attention. It took a Savage Love Reader, thank you, Mr. T, emailing me the link to the story like it was 1998 or something. Andrew Goff reports that the Lost Coast Outpost, news from Humboldt County, California, someone in Eureka, California, mounted a dildo onto the roof of Eureka's Old Town Gazebo. I can't do the gazeboner, as Goff dubbed it. I can't do the gazeboner justice here. Podcasting not a visual medium, and there are photos and video at Andrew Goff's story about the gazebo owner. Suffice it to say, whoever mounted that dildo to the roof of the gazebo in Eureka's Old Town intended for that dildo to stay mounted. You're going to want to watch the video. Lost Coast Outpost, Andrew Goff's story is titled, The City of Eureka Has Removed the Mysterious Dildo Atop The Old Town Gazebo. Still a mystery as to who put that dildo there. But I gotta say, good job, dildo mounter. Good job. And keep them coming. And internet, come on. I'm as interested in hearing about dildos mounted to the roofs of gazebos as I am in hearing about dead right-wing radio talk show hosts. Please, internet, I want both those stories, both those kinds of stories to be brought to my attention promptly. All right, Savage Love A to Z, my new book celebrating the 30th anniversary of Savage Love, my advice column, comes out later this month. You can pre-order Savage Love A to Z now, and I would appreciate it if you did pre-order it now. And coming up on today's show on the Magnum Corin McSherry from the Electronic Frontier Foundation is here to talk with me about Apple's new problematic surveillance policies, and of course, tons of your questions, tons of my answers, all that coming up on today's show.
3: Hey, Dan. I'm a longtime listener from California, and I really appreciated last week's episode when you mentioned armpit licking. And full disclosure, I was dumped last February, right before the pandemic. So it's been really difficult to listen to these sex success stories. I find myself sometimes skipping over them. Now that I'm vaccinated, I'm out and dating, and I... Met a sweet sweet Tinder boy, and mind you, let me say when I broke up with my boyfriend in February, he wasn't very much into foreplay and it was a big issue in our relationship. Well, I guess my sex success story is now over a year later. I have found a sweet Tinder boy who not only loves to lick my feet, which I never knew was something fun while I watch TV but also likes to lick my armpits. And it's been interesting to explore different parts of myself and different things that I didn't know were erogenous. So as a sex success story, sometimes you got to let go of the bad foreplay to find some fun new things. And also great advice to that previous caller. I appreciate Dan, all the great work you do.
2: Thank you for calling and sharing. I'm so glad that after your shitty past boyfriend who didn't come through with the foreplay you found yourself a sweet sweet tinder guy who showed you that armpits and feet can also be erogenous zones foreplay doesn't just have to focus on genitals and holes we'd like to start each week's show with a success story if you've got a good one if you met a sweet sweet tinder boy or girl of your own give us a call share your success story and we might open next week's love cast with yours
4: Hi, Dan. I recently went out with a guy a few times and everything was going fine. And we decided to take things the next step and go so we back to my place and hooked up. It wasn't great at all, but that was not the, um I guess, the problem. Like we talked about it afterwards and cuddled for a little bit. So I thought everything was fine and, you know, do better next time. So when he was leaving, I gave him a hug, which is when I discovered that the used condom was in his pocket. And when I asked him why it was there, he literally, he mumbled something that I couldn't understand and he turned around and he just left. And that was the last I've seen or talked to him. So I just want to know, like, is this a thing? I've never heard of this before. It's never happened to me before. How weird is it? I just am having a hard time kind of judging how strange this thing is that
5: happened
2: to me. I'll answer your question in a second, but first I have a question for you. How are you hugging men that you can find condoms, used condoms even, in their pockets during the hug? Are you hugging these guys or are you a pickpocket? Are you rifling through their pockets during a hug? What kind of hugging technique is that where you know, where you found that used condom In his pocket. Why a guy might do this? Well, a few years ago, five-ish years ago, there was a big kerfuffle that apparently the NBA, the National Basketball Association, was teaching players in these sex ed courses, sex ed crash courses, I think, for new NBA players who are suddenly millionaires, who are suddenly being pursued by, I guess, NBA groupies at games, that they should leave hotel rooms with their used condoms to prevent someone from impregnating herself with a used condom with cum that you didn't intend to deposit in the vaginal canal or anywhere near the fallopian tubes. You want to leave with that shit, lest it be misused. Now, maybe this guy thinks he's an NBA player. Maybe this guy worried that you would impregnate yourself and then give him a call later and require him to pay child support. He figured he would just err on the side of leaving with his condom. Kind of creepy. It says something about who he thought you were or what he thought you might be capable of. Or there's an alternate theory here. I don't know if this is more or less comforting a thought. Maybe he's one of those guys who likes to gobble up his own cum later when he is done. And rather than doing that in front of you, he thought he would do it in the Uber or the subway or whatever on the way home to spare you the sight Pick your poison. This guy, if thought you were a danger to him, that you might pull this move that allegedly somebody's pulled on NBA players at some point, or this guy opened that condom up on the subway and <laughs> drank it down. Some guys think their life force is in their semen. There's some tantra bullshit that I've seen rattling around on the internet for years where guys will consume their own semen to recapture their spent life force. Other guys, you know, they grew up in sex-negative households with crazy controlling parents who freaked out at the sight of a crusty tube sock. Other guys learned to destroy the evidence as children when they were young guys in middle school and high school masturbating and developed a taste for it.
5: Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 37-year-old straight cis woman on the East Coast. I connected with a guy on one of the apps a day and we were texting. And we were talking about coaching and therapy and he admitted to me that four years ago he had a sexual relationship with an old therapist. He has a new therapist who he's working on this experience with. I am just struggling with a couple of things, obviously, this history in itself, is this a red flag? Should I just cut and run? Again, I've only been texting with this guy. We haven't gone on any dates yet. Two, is it weird that he disclosed this to me so quickly? Obviously, both of these things could be, you know, a testament to poor judgment on his part. I did discuss it with him a little bit and he said that he's looking for a relationship so he just really wants to be upfront about this because he understands that it's a deal breaker for some people. Uh anyway, very strange. He seems like a really cool guy. So I was excited about potentially going out with him, but this is obviously um something I'm grappling with.
2: If he disclosed this to you Because he's still reeling from the experience. If he's traumatized, if he's still struggling to get past this and to function again sexually, maybe relevant information to some woman that he's thinking about meeting and perhaps dating. And yeah, maybe he did feel like he needed to disclose that to you. But the reason he gave for disclosing it to you is that it's potentially a deal breaker, potentially a deal breaker for you that – Four years ago, he fucked his therapist or got into a sexual relationship with his therapist. Yeah, I'm having a really hard time wrapping my head around that rationale. If that is his justification for sharing or oversharing this fact about himself that has no relevance or bearing on your relationship and isn't negatively impacting the relationship that you have with him so far because you haven't really even met him. You've just been texting with him. That seems a little bizarre. That seems to betray poor judgment, like you said. Uh, Like That's something I talk about a lot on the show. We look for people with good judgment. That seems to be a display of not great judgment on his part. Should you not see this guy? Should you not date this guy? We all have our moments. None of us exercises perfect judgment at all times. We all trip up from time to time. And if no one could ever get a date or get a second date or a third date or a second or third year of marriage because they tripped up once and displayed bad judgment. No one would be with anyone ever or not for long with anyone. So it's up to you. You're going to give him the benefit of the doubt here and assume this was an isolated incident and an isolated example of, of poor judgment in the moment. Up to you. You could go out with him, get to know him a little bit better. You say you like him and then weigh this against everything else you get to know about him But if it keeps coming, if there are more examples, if the better you get to know him, if the more text messages you exchange with him, if it becomes clear that he overshares, shares shares things with you that may not be relevant, or that at this early stage of the relationship, he shouldn't be burdening you with, then you're going to want to end it. Cut and run. Thank him for his time. Tell him you hope he gets better. Wish him luck not fuck with his new therapist and hopefully with the help of his new therapist, he'll be in good enough working order to begin dating someone else in the future and then wait for a more appropriate time in the relationship to show that other person all his scars. There's a moment that where intimacy develops to the point where you do begin to share the things with someone else that you would know better than to share right out of the gate. Because you will scare people away and you should know that. Like part of good judgment is knowing what might scare someone else away. That doesn't mean you can't have traumas, issues, things that as that person makes a larger and larger emotional investment in you, they might need to know or reach a point where they really want to know. But right now when it's still just texting, yeah, I would regard what he shared with you and when as a matter of concern. Not going to call it a red flag, but definitely a matter of concern. Something that if you're going to keep texting with this guy or thinking about dating this guy, you're going to want to keep an eye on.
6: Hey, Dan. Straight white male from Eastern Canada calling. My wife and I love your show. Well, we love your column. We only sometimes listen to the show, which is why I'm calling in. I am in a situation where I think I need to use my words. We're in a relationship like my wife and I have been together for eight years. We have a three-year-old kid. He's awesome. Uh, our relationship is awesome, except for, uh, we have mismatched libidos now. So I'm the higher libido person. My wife has the lower, relatively lower libido. And before you and all your listeners roll your eyes and lecture me for pairing with someone who has a, you know, different libido, it wasn't always like this. And also like I kind of knew what I was getting into anyway. The situation is that like, for the last year or so, I haven't been super happy with my sex life, and I haven't really pushed it either. So, like, my wife's under a lot of stress. Everyone has. Work, COVID, raising a kid. And so I did try to bring up sex early on in the pandemic, like, probably July of last year. We had a chat about it. It didn't go super well. Um Her feelings were hurt. And I just felt bad about the way it went. Subsequently, I kind of, like, withdrew a little bit sexually. Like, I stopped initiating, which is kind of weird for me, historically. And so for the last little while, like, the sex we have, but once a week, it's, like, generally initiated by her. And I basically just want to have more, like a and my wife just want to have more sex. And so what I'm torn about is like whether, how to bring this up in terms of like whether I even need to, <laughs> because I could just start initiating more and see how that goes and not really have to have some big dramatic conversation about how unsatisfied I am.
2: Gotta say, once a week with a three-year-old toddler at home, at home all the time over the last year of the pandemic, not too shabby for still newish parents. Not that you can't feel the feelings you're feeling right now about wanting more. If you've been hanging back and waiting for your wife to initiate and she's been initiating once a week and... Those times when she initiates, she seems to be into it, to want sex. She's not just realizing it's been seven days since you were last milked and she's going through the motions. Yeah, it seems to me that rather than attempting to have a conversation, you could just start initiating every once in a while. And I'm not going to jump down your throat for be partnering with someone who has a different libido. Uh, libidos wax and wane. You say it wasn't always like this. When you first met your libidos, the amount of sex that she wanted and you wanted was more in alignment. Well, over the course of a marriage, particularly one involving children, there will be times, sometimes months sometimes years where one person's libido is no longer where it was or it's out of step or sometimes somebody's libido spikes and the other person stays where it was. So even if you prioritize sexual compatibility at the start of the relationship around not just what you're into and what you want, but also how often you want to do it, you got to brace yourself in a long-term committed relationship. Again, particularly one involving raising children together that. You'll be out of step, sometimes for months, sometimes for years. And how do you get through that? Well, you remind yourself that it won't always be like this. You say about your relationship, your marriage, your sex life, it wasn't always like this. But some part of your head right now, stuck in this phase, we are only getting it once a week. And I can hear other parents of small children out there reacting with jealousy and anger to only getting it once a week. It won't always be like this now either. But you're likelier to lock yourself into a shitty sex life with diminishing returns if you stew in resentment. And if you can't communicate about this, I think you could and maybe should communicate about this. Pro tip, though. Broaden your definition of sex. Some of my advice is kind of on a collision course. I've realized in the last few months, I'm always telling people to have as broad a definition of sex as possible because then you will have more sex in your relationship. But while also urging people to have as narrow a definition of possible as cheating. So you're less likely to get cheated on, but I'll confront that and unpack that another day. I want to urge you to have a broad definition of sex. If When you initiate sex, it can be oral. It can be mutual masturbation. It can be assisted masturbation where all your wife has to do is lay with you, hold you, play with your tits or talk dirty to you or sit on your face while you have a wank. The more that counts as sex, the more sort of particularly at this stressful time in your lives as relatively still newish parents, the more low stakes, less taxing physical intimacies that you can fold into that week in addition to PIV intercourse that count the likelier you are to have sex, the likelier you are to still feel connected to your wife, still feel seen, still feel taken care of. And the likelier she is to say yes, as I'm constantly telling the straight guys out there, if every time you said yes to sex, your ass got fucked, you might say yes less often than you would – Otherwise, so at the very least, communicate with your wife about that. That saying yes to sex doesn't necessarily mean yes to intercourse, yes to being penetrated. It can mean yes to mutual masturbation. It can be yes to assisted masturbation just for you. It can be yes to you getting on your knees and eating her pussy and making her come while you have a wank. She doesn't have to get fucked. All those things are sex. All those things are good sex. And all those things count. And who knows, maybe you and your wife are already doing all of those things. You're a listener of my show. Maybe you already regard all those things as sex and as counting. But in my experience, even a lot of straight guys who listen to this show have to be reminded of this. And so I am reminding you just in case. What you want to do ultimately is to be well positioned, not just sexually, but also emotionally, so that when your wife's libido comes roaring back, That your connection hasn't been dissolved in a vat of resentment acid and that you can reconnect, which is going to require you to accept the measly once a week, maybe, that she initiates and then initiate once a week yourself. And again, broaden that definition of sex and engage in more intimacy and play and less intercourse for now.
7: Hi, Dan. I'm having a little dilemma at work here, and I wondered if you could help us out here. About a year ago, we had a guy working here, and uh, he was having an affair with one of his coworkers' wives. And uh, that went on for a while. And uh, he got ratted out when another coworkers' wife, who he was also messing around with, ratted him out. And uh, in the aftermath, it turned out there was uh, one more consensual uh, relationship. Amongst another staff member. And also we get students and interns here. And, uh, he was also, uh, kind of messing around with one of those. And, uh, I'm not sure. That's just what I know. I don't, I know there was more. There was a big investigation into it. And anyway, this would all be water under the bridge, except we hired this fucker back. This is known by management. The women involved before have all moved on to different things. Um, we do have some new people here. And, uh, I'm kind of wondering, you know, do I have a, I feel like a duty to warn some of these women that we have working here about this guy, you know, is it good to confront him? You know, I don't have a problem asking him if he's, uh, or not to shit where he eats, you know, in front of everybody. Um, I'd uh, appreciate hearing your perspective and, uh, and maybe any tips you have for navigating this, uh, new, hopefully not too toxic work environment.
2: So there was an investigation. And your company hired this guy back after all the chaos and drama that he stirred up with his dick. And it must be pretty nice dick considering that every married woman who's employed by your company wants to take a ride on it. You say that all the women that he fucked around with have left the company. And that has me concerned about whether there's a hostile work environment at your company and there is tolerance for this guy and his shitty behavior. If indeed it was shitty, if these weren't consensual peer relationships that happened at work, you don't say that this guy was in management and he was exploiting people or pressuring people preying on people who were under him in the org flow chart. I assume perhaps naively that if he had been abusing his authority or power to get into these women's pants, that they wouldn't have hired him back, that he'd be gone. And maybe some of these women would still be there, but they're gone. He's there. There are new women on staff. Do you have a duty to warn? I assume The new women on staff are grown-ass adult women who can make their own choices. Ideally, we all want to make informed choices. The fact that this guy is an irresistible player, kind of a Lothario, kind of a slut, that might be information that these women, the new women at work All of whom, presumably, like all of the women who used to be at this company, are going to fuck him at some point. Might want to have in hand, factor into their decision, the choice that they're going to make about whether to fuck this guy or not. But I don't know how you get out in front of this without seeming like the problem at work. Like the creep, like captain controlling cock block cop. I would advise you just to stay the fuck out of it and to hope that if he stirs up fresh drama, having consensual sex with multiple people at work who are married to other people who are not at work, that there'll be another investigation and maybe this time his ass will get fired. He's not sleeping with you and this ain't your company to run. And if he's not abusing his position, his power, his authority, if he's not in management and sleeping with people under him, yeah, I don't know how you involve yourself in this without seeming like the crazy person, without seeming like the problem here. So, yeah. Stay the fuck out of it. That would be my advice.
8: Hi, Dan. Um, I am a 25-year-old woman, bisexual. About a year ago, I started to be pursued by my friend who is married, heavily pursued by this man. He told me that him and his wife have threesomes, and that if I was interested, he would want to invite me into their bed. We meet up uh, and we have the threesome. And then the next day, the wife texts me and says that, she's really sorry she didn't tell me that she has a hard no boundary of like no penetration with him with the other female and that she's really hurt and really upset and she's not really mad at me just mad that the situation happened. So basically he lied to my face uh, multiple times to lead me to believe that we could we could have penetrative sex. He We were basically dating every day. He was leaving me letters and calling me and texting me and giving me gifts and led her to believe that I was lesbian. And uh, I just don't know what to do. I live in a small town. I see him all the time. He's friends with my friends. And I'm just, I'm super hurt. It was a horrible experience, one of the worst experiences of my life. And I just don't know what to do. Um, and I'd love your advice on how I can move past this while still having to, like, see him all the time. Um, I told him I was hurt, and he offered a really bad apology. So did she, honestly. They both just really didn't consider my feelings, and I just don't know how to not be so angry.
2: So I just listened to your call, and I'm a little annoyed, uh, not not at you, and definitely mm. at him, but also a little annoyed at his wife.
8: Yeah, I don't know.
2: Why the fuck would she call you when it's her husband who committed this boundary violation? You know, even if you're never going to be invited over ever again, you didn't knowingly do anything wrong in that moment.
8: Yeah, and she, I don't think she implied that. I mean, she was upset and she just told me what happened afterwards. And she apologized like it was like a shitty, like, sorry, I didn't communicate, but... I don't think she, you know, I think she tried to say that she wasn't angry with me, but, like, I'm sure she was a little, like, you know, and, like, when she sees me in public, she, like, doesn't acknowledge me and stuff, you know?
2: Ugh. Ugh. I mean... I, I don't know. She apologized to you. It wasn't about you. You know, her husband is the one who's guilty of a boundary violation. Right. You're not psychic. You couldn't right. have known that that was a boundary. Right. You were invited over right. a three-way. Penetrative sex was initiated with you. Nobody said anything.
8: She left the room and he was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, can we fuck? And he was like, yeah, we can fuck. And... Then we did. And then she came in and saw us doing that.
2: Oh my God.
8: So I even asked for his consent and he consented yes. So also, I should say too that we did like have a little bit of mushrooms. That's like something I remembered that I left out that like we did have mushrooms before the three way. Not that that's an excuse. And it wasn't like it was a very small amount, you know, but I'm sure that did make things harder, like harder to communicate and such. But I guess I was just shocked that they would both take mushrooms in that environment, like without having communicated first, you know, like the mushrooms didn't help, but they weren't the the fault. You
2: You were the wronged party here. And and, and I think you were primarily wronged by him. I think you were also wronged by her, that her anger should have been entirely directed at her husband and that she's being rude to you in public as if you were the problem yeah is bullshit you say you live in a small town you have to see them everywhere you go right mutual friends i'm here from the gay parallel universe to tell you that wherever Mm -hmm. a gay person lives it's a small town new york is a small town if you're gay like you see the same people in the same bars and clubs at the same parties no matter how big the city is and so i'm just going to gift you our coping mechanisms when a oh my finds gosh. himself in a situation like this. That
8: sounds amazing.
2: <laughs> they're, they're simple, and, and you probably could have guessed at them. You smile mm-hmm. and nod if eye contact is made and then ignore them. And you've right to your own experience. And mm. y- you didn't sign an NDA. And if this is right, the way they right. behave and the way they treat people, they're going to get a deserved reputation
9: mm, for, for being sure
2: assholes and users. I'm not telling you to like – get three billboards outside of whatever small town. was saying. I'm just saying, you know, if people notice that it's awkward when you're there and they're there and somebody asks you why you don't have to cover for them and their shitty behavior. Yeah. We had a three way. He lied to me about PIV being okay. And she's mad at me. And
8: right. And I guess it's like, you know, my friends know that and my friends are friends with them too. And then like, they're also in a band together and perform a lot and like my friends love their music so it's like and it's a small town so we don't have a lot of options so it's like you know Friday night we're gonna go see them play so it's just kind of and like you know they'll like they come up to my friends and like engage with my friends and my friends are still talking with them which is like fine it's just hard you know and like the last time it happened it was just hard i just kind
2: of you need to flip the script. an extra
8: drink and you need to flip yeah, the script on
2: them they're icing you out to try to make you feel uncomfortable my advice and my strategy in that same situation has been to be aggressively nice mm,
8: like it's if you're so be, hard like bro, I'm i know so it's, them. it's fake you know,
2: I know. Well, not of course it's person. fake it's fake and it's weaponized niceties you're being Ugh, aggressively it stresses nice. me out <laughs> Like, if she stands there in front of you talking to a friend of yours and doesn't make eye contact with you, say, Hey, hi, how are you? How are you doing? Right. And make eye contact with her.
8: Address. Yeah. Yeah, you're ignoring me. Yeah, you don't have to play
2: along with being ignored.
8: Right.
2: And they sound like terrible people. I'm I'm sorry. This is not okay.
8: (laughs) They're not. I mean, I don't know what's going on in their heads and hearts, but like, they're not terrible people, you know? I just.
2: But they're terribly unavoidable people.
8: And right. They're unavoidable and they just didn't really apologize well. So it really makes it hard for me to move on, you know, and they're just friends with my friends. And it's just like, I don't know, it's all messy. And then every time I talk about it, all my friends who are very, most of my friends are very like, monogamous they're like this is why you don't do a three-way you know and
2: i'm like no (laughs) nobody in a monogamous relationship ever got broken up with or used or hurt or ignored in public by someone that they used to be in a monogamous relationship with that they're not speaking to anymore because monogamy is just a greasy glide path to nirvana and right. anything that's actually and adventurous like, it's is not a, is like a disaster. all
8: threesomes are bad and i and I tell them like I've had lovely threesome experiences, and I cherish those memories, and they're like, "Oh cool,
2: <laughs> and you know what the, the last thing I'll leave you with is sometimes people who are in the kind of relationship that it sounds like these two people are in, they enjoy conflict and drama and mm. they seek it out, and yeah. in some way it must arouse or excite them, and so not only did you do nothing I didn't wrong. Think about that. By having PIV sex with this dude under those circumstances, you probably did them a favor. You probably – you gave them what they wanted, which was conflict, drama, makeup sex, breakup sex, makeup sex, and then getting to be – dicks to you yeah. as if you were the problem an
8: object <laughs> yeah well not just
2: the ob- not just an object but you were the bad guy and you were n- right, not. Right. they're taking it out on you yeah it, it, being mad at each other means that it might they might have to leave each other so they have the luxury mm-hmm. of being mad at you and you yeah, are the object lesson so for every other woman in your community every other woman who's at any of their shows yeah. That being their third is no fun being their third means being their punching bag. Don't sign up for it. You should spread that word. You should tell people when asked. You have a right to your own experiences and, and, and talking about them. And this was a shitty experience and it was shitty because they're shitty. And you don't have to right. cover for them. Good luck. Thank you. You're welcome. Don't stop having three ways there are better people out there.
8: <laughs> <laughs> I will. Thank you. You're
10: the
3: best.
2: Bye.
10: Hi, Dan, I am a straight woman from the South. My ex and I broke up roughly a month ago. We had been seeing each other for just over a year, and we had never had PIV sex that entire time of our relationship. And he had a very strict Catholic upbringing. And when I asked him when we first started, you know, seeing each other, you know, about sex, uh, I knew he was a what what he calls a quote-unquote virgin I think that's so silly it makes me laugh because I mean he had been very intimate and sexual with multiple women throughout his life so (laughs) regardless he had never had PIV and so I was just trying to understand why you know I didn't want to shame him I was really into him insanely physically attracted to him and he also stimulated me mentally, made me laugh a lot, and that's another love language of mine. His response to me was it better be the right person. Um and then I just I just accepted that and I dated him for like many, many, many months. And like I said, just over a year. And we never had P I V. It was still very hot, still very sexy. But anyway, I just I feel like he withheld one of my favorite pastimes is what I like to say and I'm just curious your thoughts on that I know you were raised Catholic um, have a Catholic background but also I think I just kind of could use some hope in like knowing that there's a lot of men out there that are really trying to understand um women and how to be progressive with sex that that are also straight
2: Occam's razor often the obvious answer is the correct answer He had a strict Catholic upbringing. He also answered the question when you put it to him, why no POV? He was waiting for the right person. He obviously didn't feel that you were the right person. And so PIV wasn't on the menu. All sorts of other things were on the menu, which I think is crazy hypocritical. If you're doing mutual masturbation and oral sex and rolling around and humping each other, even having anal sex as some people who are saving PIV for marriage – do. Those are distinctions without much of a difference. And if you're denying your sex partner their favorite thing, what may be for them the most important, meaningful, physically satisfying, gratifying sex act, well, that seems a little selfish, even a little manipulative. But yeah, you know why this guy wasn't sticking his dick in your twat. He told you Strict Catholic saving himself for marriage. Maybe there's something else going on. Maybe there are a lot of other things going on. Maybe the strict Catholic upbringing and saving himself for marriage was an excuse. Maybe he was covering for performance anxiety. Maybe the premature ejaculation when PIV happens has been a problem for him in past relationships. Maybe he has a white hot fear of knocking someone up and so wants to avoid PIV. With the facts and evidence, the strict Catholic upbringing and the things that he told you when you asked him, and he's the one who would know why he didn't want to do this. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Catholic, religious zap on his head, saving himself or some small part of himself or one particular sex act for the person he marries. And in the year that you were together, he never decided or determined that you were the person that he wanted To marry. And I assure you, there are tons of straight guys out there, the overwhelming majority of them, upwards of 95% of them, who are perfectly happy to have PIV sex before marriage, PIV sex with their girlfriends, PIV sex with people that they've just met. You won't have to get online for long before you encounter several hundred thousands of those guys. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break from your calls for a conversation with somebody who knows what they're talking about. I popped off at the top of episode 772 about some changes Apple is making to their operating systems, changes designed to create, quote unquote, new protections for children. And I don't think I got everything right, and I wanted to do a bit of a deeper dive anyway. So I'm really happy that Corin McSherry, legal director for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, is joining me on the phone to talk about Apple's new policies. Hey, Corinne, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Uh, I got a lot of things wrong, or I got a couple of things wrong, or I might have overstated a couple of things in that opening round. One of the things I got wrong was the name of your organization, which I called the Electronic <laughs> Freedom Foundation. I've done that before. I looked at my notes. They said Electronic Frontier Foundation, but what came out of my mouth was Electronic Freedom Foundation, and I apologize for that.
11: No problem at all.
2: So backing up, as if I hadn't already talked about this or people hadn't already read about it, what is Apple doing here? And why does the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Frontier Not Freedom, regard it as a problem?
11: Right. So, you know, you didn't get all that much wrong. But let's just, in a nutshell, let me just summarize what Apple is doing. They're doing two main things that people are are concerned about that I'm concerned about. One is this. So, um, and let me say at the outset, all of these things are, are designed to go after child um, exploitation material and child predators. And I think I want to say out of, out of the gate, everyone can agree that that kind of content and that kind of activity is horrible, right? Um, there is no question about that. The question is whether in the name of addressing one harm, Apple's inviting a whole lot of other harms. So what they're doing is this. First, what they're doing is when you go to upload photos to the cloud, if you are an Apple user, um, they're going to scan your photos before they're uploaded, and they're going to compare it against a database of um, child exploitation materials. Um, and if there's a match, right, they're going to flag that. They're going to prevent you from uploading it. But they're also they're going they're going to get a, a little bit of a, a ping. And if you and if 20 pings happen, for example, they're going to flag you and um, potentially, you know, as a potentially someone who's engaged in, you know, sharing and collecting um, this kind of material. Okay. So not one ping won't do it. One sort of picture of your kid in the bathtub is not going to do it, even assuming that would match against the database. But, um, but several pings you're going to come to their attention and they're matching it against a database of material or two da- databases of material that have been identified as, you know, definitely exploitative material. So they've put in some place to try to make sure there aren't too many false positives and, and there. I want any.
2: I want to jump in here for a second. Uh, Mm-hmm. There are – I have read stories in New York Times did a big story about yeah. people who were exploited, who are now adults, who were raped as children and they're, the violation of them as children when they were children. Those images are still circulating online and mm-hmm. these adults are traumatized and re-traumatized when these images of them are circulated and they find out about it or know about it or there's a new prosecution about it and the evidence is all – Them again. And so Mm -hmm. sharing and storing and circulating these images, although some would argue, and I disagree with this argument, some would rationalize that the image already exists. You're not creating any more images. It hurts people, it harms people, it re traumatizes people. And it is not okay to store, share, save. Old images of child rape, child pornography, or certainly not okay to create new ones. I just wanted to be clear about that.
11: Absolutely. I don't think anybody really fundamentally would disagree with that at all. Um, it is – the, the, the problems lie elsewhere. Um, but it, it's not it, – so, yeah, 100% agree with you.
2: So where do, where do the problems lie? So Apple's going to be looking at the photos that you have on your phone that you're uploading to your cloud – Scanning them. Right. And, and and how is that a problem? I mean the people jump in here with the doing nothing wrong, you got nothing to hide argument. How is it a problem?
11: Right. Okay. So this is one feature. I want to make sure we get to the other feature as well. But let me answer your question. So the concern is this Apple has been a staunch defender up until now of user privacy and a staunch defender of making sure that um, people can encrypt and have real privacy in, in what is on their device. Um, they actually went to court and fought the, the U.S. government over it. And so, and it's a Commitment that they have made to their users over and over. They have moved away from that now. So now what they've done is they've said, "Well, except, except we're going to, you know, we're going to insert our, our hands into your device for this one purpose." And here's the thing: it never stops with just one purpose. You know, the cliche is, "If you build it, they will come," and that is certainly true here. And by they, I, and by they, I mean other countries. So for right now, Apple said we're only going to roll this out in the United States where we know there's lots of legal protections and for people's privacy and speech and so on. We're not rolling it out in other countries. Well, it's enti- it's very unlikely or I think maybe a little naive to think that that's, that that's going to hold or we worry that it's not going to hold. Secondly, it's going to be expanded to other kinds of content, and especially when you combine it with other countries. So there's lots of material that's illegal in other countries. Um, and there, and apple's going to be pressured by those governments to include that kind of content in the database and to expand the database um to include it and i 'm talking about things like you know many countries content related to um, queerness is illegal you can 't have that right, and so there's going to be pressure to on Apple to move far beyond you know, child exploitation content. And that's the big worry. Now, Apple has said, Apple has said, we will not do that. But will not is very different from cannot. They've built the system to make it possible. That didn't exist before. Now it does.
2: And the Electronic Frontier Foundation's fear is now that they've created this backdoor into everyone's device that if not now, if not in a year or two from now, but at some point, Apple will succumb to the pressure of authoritarian regimes, and there are more and more of them everywhere every day it seems. And we are at, at, at risk now in the United States of having one here of our very own that Apple won't be able to resist in with new leadership perhaps in five or ten years allowing other countries or, or even this country to reach into our devices to search for other banned or illegal content if they make this exception Correct. to their privacy policies around this content. And it. It's easy to justify making that exception for this content, for child images of child rape, child porn, so appalling, so criminal that it's not hard to get to, okay, for this, we will make this exception. And EFF is essentially arguing that this is a step onto a slippery slope that ends with the what we're, you know, we've seen in China, the rounding up of dissidents. In Hong Kong, based on their social media, uh, hacking of their phones, the, the, the purging of queer content from the internet in Russia, uh, the way queer people are hunted in countries like Saudi Arabia, that these things are already possible with the technologies that we have now. But with a backdoor onto everyone's phone, sitting there, waiting to be used, waiting to be pushed through by other bad actors five, ten years from now, that's EFF's concern.
11: Exactly. Now, Apple has said that the term backdoor isn't exactly precise, and, and we can set that aside. The point for me is you've set up a scanning capability, and, it's, and you, all you need to do is tweak it a little bit, and it'll scan for something else. And it's not at all hard to imagine. Um, and we've already seen it, as you said. We've already seen there's so much pressure around the world um, to do this kind of scanning. And Apple's, you know, one of the things Apple's done till now is said, look, we don't have that system. So we can't do it.
2: Right. We don't have anything in our software that's on people's phones in their pockets that would allow us to look inside their phones. That's what Apple used to be able to say. Now Apple has something on your phone that can look inside your phone.
11: That's right. And then the other, I do want to make sure, because I think this is very important, um, maybe for your listeners, to hit on the other feature that they've done, created, which is um, scanning um, messages. So what they're doing now is that for um, kids under um, the age of 18, their parents, when they set up their accounts, can um, set it up so that they get notifications. So if that child, if a child under 13 in particular, um, sends or receives sexually explicit material they get a little pop-up, and that pop-up says, hey, this seems to be sensitive. Are you sure you want to click on it? And if you do, you should know we're going to tell your parents. And then that image is going to be permanently saved to their phone in a way they can't delete, so the parents, once they're notified, can go see what they're doing. Now, if you're over 13. If you're 13 to 17, you just get the pop-up. You don't, your parents aren't notified. But either way, what this is doing is it is is telling kids, you cannot have private communications. You do not have private, you know, chats. Um, And you should just know that you always have a big brother watching your communications And, um, and that to me worries me a lot. I actually, I understand why parents might want to know if their if their kid is receiving material that they wouldn't approve of. I get it. I also think that kids deserve privacy too. Mm -hmm. And, um, this is going to send a message that you don't have it. And keep in mind, this could even apply to group chats. So you might be communicating with somebody else. You don't know whether the parental notification is on or not, now, again, this is supposed to discourage child predators. I get it. I really understand that it's supposed to discourage grooming. But there are going to be a lot of other consequences for that. I mean, I can imagine a kid in 10, 11, you know, out there trying to communicate, explore their sexuality, maybe, maybe potentially transgender kid, just trying to, like, get oh information a and communicate with people.
2: 13-year-old lesbian girl or gay boy trying to find information, interacting with somebody on the internet and asking them for advice, not being groomed, being mentored and finding that mentorship and that information online from someone who has no interest in them, no desire. I've had those sorts of conversations via email with 15-year-olds who were closeted, whose parents didn't know they were gay, and wanted at least some reassurance, not – dirty talk, but certainly some of the conversations I've had with technically minors in my professional capacity, their parents would object to.
11: Sure. Absolutely. Now, I want to be clear about this because I don't want, I don't want kids to be more scared than they need to be. If you are 13 to 17, you get the notice. Your parents are not notified. Okay, it's yeah, it's 12 and under. Okay,
2: That's one of the things I got wrong. One of the nightmare scenarios I spun out was, you know, the 17-year-old with the 15-year-old girlfriend who turns 18 and is still texting his 15-year-old girlfriend in the same way, and then the parents are notified, and he goes to jail. Right. That was one of my right. nightmare scenarios. That's not yeah. actually a concern.
11: That's not exactly a concern. And also, we're only talking about images at this point, not text. Okay, so it's limited. Now, again once you build it you know we could see it being expanded further than that so so those same, same concerns that we have with the other thing uh, apply here as well um i just don't want kids to be more scared than they're ne- than they need to be but i also think that there are 11-year-olds there are 12-year-olds who are you know 10-year-olds uh, you know i'm sorry it might be upsetting for people to know this but there are kids that age who are exploring and learning and wanting information again i think about trans kids and um and I worry very much that um they won't they'll you know they'll click wrong and their parents will get notified of something that they are not prepared to share and and that might be dangerous for them to share um and either way, they will be intimidated and they will be afraid to have the conversations that they need to have
2: yeah I think this is of- something a lot of people don't understand about being a queer kid that it's often the people that are the biggest risk to you. The worst bullies in your lives are your parents. The people you're hiding from are your parents. It doesn't mean that a queer kid can't be exploited, can't be groomed, can't have an inappropriate conversation with someone they met online who has ill intent and isn't a good person. Right? But this idea that, Oh, just alert the parents and everything will be sorted. Alert the parents and the kid will be safe. Doesn't always apply when you're talking about queer kids. It doesn't always apply when you're talking about straight kids who are sexually active in ways that their parents would disapprove of. I have friends who grew up Catholic. I have friends whose parents went into violent rages when they discovered that their 20-year-old children were having premarital sex. You don't have to think hard or long to imagine the parent of a 13-year-old who's just curious because they're in the throes of puberty and wants more information about sex blowing up.
11: Yeah, that's exactly right. And again, keep in mind the communications don't have to be, you know, with an adult. They could just be talking to their friends. I mean, I've mm-hmm. got a kid <laughs> and I don't I don't know that I would be completely thrilled with all of the uh Texts that he sends and receives um, at all, but I respect that he needs privacy, and so I don't monitor them. And I think people people sort of always imagine, you know, themselves as the parent. They don't really imagine that there's, you know, there are other kinds of parents out there. And they also, I think, don't necessarily appreciate that no matter how great their relationship with their children is, maybe their children still need some privacy. And what this is saying to those kids is, you're not going to get it.
2: Can I uh, ask one more question? One more nightmare scenario I tossed out there in my intro that I know that you listen to that I want you to debunk if it needs debunking. People send DMs to people, people send messages to people that are unsolicited that sometimes include photographs, right? I think uh, I mentioned on the show, I have like 500 unread DMs uh, from people I don't follow, don't know, at Instagram at least. Some of them have images in it. Could someone send you photographs that then are stored? I mean, those images are on my phone, right? They're in my direct message file on my Instagram account. Are they on my phone? Whatever anybody sends somebody, could somebody maliciously start texting someone photographs or DMing someone photographs at, a, at an app? And then Apple scans your phone, Apple finds these images, you get reported?
11: Um, so mostly no. What happens is that Apple scans scans photos when you get to the point of uploading them to the cloud.
2: So you would have had to take some action.
11: You have to take some kind of action precisely. Um, So they're not just scanning your phone at all times. I mean, thank goodness. (laughs) That'd be a lot worse. Um, That would be a nightmare scenario. So no, you have to be taking some action before... Before Apple intervene, and in fact, if you Apple has said if you aren't happy about this, one thing you can do is just you know don't upload your photos to iCloud. You're safe. And so I suppose it's kind of funny because what Apple is basically saying is don't use this service that we're marketing to you really hard. But okay.
2: But also, isn't that (laughs) Apple alerting the child predators they're trying to catch by saying, "Hey, you can store all the images of child rape that you want, just don't upload them to the cloud, and we're cool."
11: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Apple is trying to do something very hard here. I think they are really are trying to live up to their commitment to protecting user privacy. I mean, it's in their business interest to do it, aside from anything else, because this is what they've been promising people for years, while also sort of responding to the tremendous pressure that they are getting from um, other, you know, to to do more to address um, child exploitation content. I get it. But nonetheless, you know, the decision, the step they've taken here, I think is going to cause much more harm than good.
2: Where can people who are interested in this, and I really think everyone should be interested in this, where can they read more about it?
11: So they can do two things. One is um, they can follow us at um, EFF.org. We've been writing a lot about this issue, and we will continue to do so. And we also actually ourselves have a podcast called How to Fix the Internet, um, where we talk about issues like this and a lot of other kinds of digital rights issues, always cutting edge because that's what we do. Um, And so it's um, called, like I said, How to Fix the Internet, and we love to have people subscribe. Um, We're working on a new season right
2: now. EFF.org, that is the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Corin, thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. That was tremendously informative, and I kind of wish I'd had that conversation with you before.
11: Well, you weren't nearly as wrong as you were worried, actually. So, not to worry. Hi, Dan, and the tech-savvy at- at-risk youth.
0: I'm a 30-something-year-old female in the Midwest, and I had a question about a friendship. I had, About a year ago, I ended up ending a friendship that was a toxic mess in the end, and there were some... Really nasty, abusive language, uh, coming from my friend that ended it. And to this day, even a year later, she's calling me her enemy and it's very intensely emotional. And my question isn't so much about her, but I don't know how to handle our mutual friends that seem to think, yeah, no, hating me is uh, totally reasonable and see that. It's just this generic, acceptable thing. I would have figured after a year, things would have calmed down, but it's becoming more and more uncomfortable to know that there's people in my life who see this as acceptable. Well, Do you have any advice on how to handle mutual acquaintances or friends after an abusive situation?
2: It's bad enough to live in a world where when romantic relationships end or marriages end, Social universes, social galaxies are torn apart. People have to pick sides. People have to go off with one or the other. I'm not sure on top of that we can afford to live in a world where when friends have a falling out, the same process has to happen. The same expectations kick into gear where everybody has to choose sides. And in my experience, when friends have a falling out and one person expects everyone else to choose sides, it's that person with that expectation who loses. It's that person who doesn't get chosen. Sorry, your friend is toxic. I'm sorry. This friendship became unbearable and that you two had to pull away from each other in this way. It's a shame that you weren't able to both of you. Uh, let's put all the blame on her because she's not a listener and you called and I love my callers. It's all her. She's a bitch. Uh, it's a shame that she's so toxic and I understand that it must be aggravating to watch your mutuals still make nice with this person who's been so awful to you but you're playing a long game here if she is awful if she is toxic if she is the problem then her awful toxicity is ultimately going to impact or poison or destroy all of her other relationships, including the relationships with your mutuals. And they'll circle back to you when they've cut her out of their lives to say, oh my God, wow, now I understand what you went through. Let's go get dinner. But if you draw a line in the sand now, early in that process and demand people choose one of you, odds are even if she's the toxic one, if she's the awful one, just by making that demand, some of those people, many of those people, most of those people are going to choose her your best strategy here to win this in the long run is to be the bigger person as exhausting as it is. If we're not talking about a relationship romantic or friendship or otherwise that involved physical or emotional abuse or credit card theft or some physical assault, something insane. If that were the case, I'm sure you would have mentioned those facts. And if that were the case, I think the victim of that kind of abuse or exploitation has a reasonable expectation that folks will look at what happened to her and not want to associate with the person who did those things to her. But if this is just a friendship that went south and soured and it felt awful and toxic, but it wasn't abusive. Yeah. Don't make people pick sides, just sit back and wait and the mutuals, will gravitate toward you as they realize about this woman what you realized about this woman. If you're right about this woman.
9: Hey, Dan. Gay middle-aged white male here living in a D.C. area. You may have tackled this topic before, and if so, I'm sorry that I missed it, but I was engaging with a post online asking if having a racial preference in dating is racist. And it's something I've seen online before, like this idea that Unless you are equally attracted to people from all races, that you're somehow a racist. Now, I think a lot of this isn't how the preference is expressed. Like if I say, I'm a middle-aged white male, and I generally prefer the same for dating, as opposed to, no Latinos or blacks, exclamation point, all caps, which I've seen many times in online ads over the years, and is incredibly douchey and definitely comes across as racist. I think tone and wording has a lot to do with it, but for some people, and I guess this is coming mostly from the woke crowd, any expression of a racial preference in sex is inherently racist, and that tone and wording have no bearing if the desired end goal is the same. So I've slept with guys of several races over the years and I've had a great time, but it's specifically middle-aged or older white men that consistently turn my head and which I find particularly appealing. Does that come across as racist?
2: Nobody has to sleep with anybody that they don't want to sleep with. We can acknowledge that. We can accept that. That can be true. We can also, at the same time, acknowledge and accept, and it can be true, that who we want to sleep with, our tastes, our ideas about what is beautiful or desirable, are shaped, to a very large extent, by culture and by racist Beauty standards. And so I guess I want to kind of have it, or I want to let people have it both ways. Yeah, if you are exclusively attracted to white people only, to a kind of European standard of beauty, I'm not going to order you to sleep with people you're not attracted to. You aren't obligated to sleep with anyone you're not attracted to. I do think you should acknowledge or should be able to acknowledge that yeah, that was probably not your choice, an independent choice. It probably wasn't a preference that emerged fully formed from nowhere. It was shaped by culture. It gets complicated though when you meet people of color. You meet black people who are only attracted to white people. You meet Asian people who are only attracted to Latino people. There are a lot of racial preferences. There are a lot of people out there with particular racial preferences and not all of them are white and not everyone's racial preference or the kinds of people or the types of people they're attracted to are attracted to white people. It's confusing and confounding. And it would be wonderful if we lived in a world where everyone was equally attracted to everyone else and open to dating anyone of any race We don't live in that world and we may never live in that world. And there are times when I wonder if there isn't some genetic coding that goes into this acknowledging that I think it's mostly shaped, primarily shaped, largely shaped, almost exclusively shaped by larger cultural forces, by racist cultural forces, by racist beauty standards. But we know also that, Genetic diversity strengthens populations, and there do seem to be some people out there who have this almost hardwired attraction to people who are different than they are in a very particular and easily identifiable way. How do you tease apart what might be genetically coded from what might be culturally shaped? It's almost impossible. The one thing that we can control, though, is how we express ourselves. You know, I was talking to a guy and they're out there who had, you know, no blacks on his stupid online dating profile. This is many years ago and he was an older white guy. And it's been my experience that most people who engage in this sort of shit do it in their early twenties and then they get grief for it. And then they think better of it. And sometimes they rethink who they assume they might be attracted to and their tastes broaden. That is, Kind of the process I went through in my 20s. I thought I was only attracted to like the kind of frat boy, other side of Aspen, gay dudes that were being served up to me by mainstream culture, Tom Cruise and by gay porn. And it turned out that no, my tastes were much broader than that. Once I dug out from under all of that cultural baggage and excavated my own uh, attractions I met this guy and he still had, he wasn't older and he still had that in his profile. And I just said to him, like, if you were in a gay bar, you walk into a gay bar and then a line forms in front of you. And it's all these guys who just want to let you know that they're not attracted to older gay white men. that They're not attracted to people outside this particular age range. And you are not one of the guys that they will be going home with tonight from this bar. You would think everybody who did that was an asshole. Well, everybody who puts their racial preferences on their dating profiles on the apps are basically the equivalent of somebody approaching you in a bar just to let you know out of the blue that you don't do it for them for whatever reason. You don't need to know that. They just don't need to make eye contact with you. They don't need to pick you up. They don't need to buy you a drink. They just leave you the fuck alone. And we should be able to do that on apps. Somebody approaches you. Who's not your type that you're not interested in for whatever reason You don't have to respond, but you want to proactively approach people to let them know that you're not interested in them. That is if done in person, if done in a gay bar, that is asshole behavior. Same goes for on the apps. It is asshole behavior. It is unnecessary, but I think we all owe it to ourselves really to be thoughtful and to interrogate our desires and our attractions, not for other people, not because other people are dying for your dick and want to get on your dick and you owe them your dick and you're cruel. They have other options than you. I guess I'm appealing to everyone's own self interest here. If you never interrogate your desires, you never really think about who you're attracted to and why, and examine that, never give yourself a chance to discover that maybe your tastes are broader than you realized and that other types of men are attractive, not just objectively, but attractive to you, that you are attracted to them, think of what you're denying yourself. Think of the experiences, the relationships, the intimacies that you will miss out on, that you will have been cheated and deprived of yourself by yourself for not being thoughtful about this shit. All right, before we get to response calls, let's read some of your tweets about the show. Sverdka tweets, LOL, wow, wow. Listening to the rant at the top of this week's Savage Lovecast while on an American Airlines flight was a trip within a trip. I got a lot of pushback from listeners who were offended by my rant at the top of last week's podcast. Mostly I heard from people who didn't think they should have to close their window shades. It was amazing how butt sore some people were about that rule. One of my three rules for airline passengers. It's rule number two It comes Between rule number one, shut your mouth, and rule number three, shut your fucking mouth. I am not the FAA. I am not a member of the cabin crew. You don't have to shut your window if you don't want to just because the mean podcaster said so. But if I am on your flight, you do have to live with being silently despised by me. Shelley tweets to the young couple that called into the Savage Lovecast, worried about moving in next door to their parents and their parents expecting invites to all of their dinner parties. Let them know that they don't have to invite you to all of their dinner parties either. And finally, Dr. Jamie Bear tweets, As much as I am turned on, hearing about at fake Dan Savage washing his arse and how his husband and he use their mattress for more than just sleeping every week, I've given in and spent $36 on a year of the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, twice as long and no more capitalism. Thank you, Dr. Jamie Bear, for subscribing to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, which is indeed twice as long and no ads but with or without capitalism, we all got to clean our asses and we all got to sleep somewhere, right? And I feel like I got to warn you, Jamie, maybe you didn't see it in the small print, but one of the perks of becoming a Magnum subscriber to the Savage Lovecast is that I randomly call one Magnum subscriber every week and leave that week's ads on their voicemail. So there's still a chance that you're going to hear about my hygiene practices. Thanks to everyone who posted to your social media, Instagram, Twitter, everywhere else about the Savage Lovecast this week. We really appreciate it when people help spread the word. And if you want me to read your tweet on next week's Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag #SavageLovecast. And now listener response calls.
12: Hi, Dan, I'm a Magnum subscriber and I'm calling in response to the poor woman who's dealing with a piece of shit who is not having sex with her because she's 10 pounds heavier. Uh, Your advice is absolutely on the money. This is absurd. It makes no sense. What he's doing is controlling. I don't see an out on this. I suspect you're with a narcissist. If you find that he is lifting you up, dropping you down, lifting you up, dropping you down, this is 101 with narcissists where they will maintain you on your heels at all times. They'll love bomb you and then they'll cut you down into little pieces. This does not really have a solution, so got to get out of there. This this man is going to do the same thing to your child, by the way, and you're going to have to make sure that child is trained to understand the kind of person that is their father, because it's quite likely that this golden child is a representation of him, an extension of him, and he feels super, super committed to making that representation of him shine so I'm sorry I really am I trust and know that it's not you it's him and 10 pounds ain't shit dump his ass
0: hi Dan I am a 52 year old straight woman and I was listening to your talk with the dad whose preteen daughter thought that she was a lesbian because she thought boys were gross and I'll be honest with you I think boys that age are gross from about, oh eight 8 to 13. They're just disgusting. So, Dad, don't worry if your da- daughter thinks boys at that age are gross. They are, and they will stop being gross when they discover girls, and she may be more interested in them. Not to say that if she's a lesbian, that's a problem, but boys being gross at that age, totally normal. They are gross at that age.
1: I just wanted to respond to the woman in the last episode who was calling about her boyfriend's nipples. I'm calling to tell you that this is, yes, indeed possible. About 10 years ago, I met a younger man who was very into me because he liked daddies. And... I was very into him because he's a sexy boy with a blonde beard and I'm into blonde beards. And I started playing with his nipples when we were having sex and he said, oh, that doesn't really work for me. And I just kept at it. And then I moved away. And before I left town, he made sure to tell me that the best present I gave him was to teach him about his nipples because I was persistent and I just played with his nipples. And they became... Very powerful for him. I would also add to Dan's suggestion of tit clamps. Make sure they're adjustable. Have fun. And we're going to leave it there.
2: Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways for you to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. This Thursday, we're doing another sack Lunch, an exclusive hangout for Magnum subscribers where we answer questions together and we get to know each other a little bit better on Zoom. If you're a subscriber already to the Magnum, you don't have to do anything. We will send out a Zoom link on the morning of Thursday, September 2nd, and then you just hop on and join the fun at noon Pacific time. If you're not a subscriber and you want to be and you want to come to sack Lunch and maybe give some sex advice with me, head to savagelovecast.com and learn and my dirty little film festival hump is headed out on tour heading to theaters for vaccinated fans throughout the u.s and canada with our hump 2021 lineup from last spring there's also a new hump's greatest hits that will be streaming online starting september 10th and don't forget the deadline for making your film your debut in hump your film for hump is december 8th which is right around the corner go to humpfilmfest.com Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Corin McSherry on Twitter at CMCSHERR. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech Seppi at RiskYouth and Nancy. i will be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Love Cast. Thanks for having